there's never been a higher level. I'm not saying there's a high level. I'm saying there's never been a higher level of support because homelessness are not just a Puget Sound region issue, but we're seeing it more and more across many parts of the state. Uh, if we don't question and report rigorously on what our elected and appointed officials are doing, uh, then we leave the field open to them to operate without scrutiny. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Last year, I spoke with Howard S. Wright, chairman of the Seattle Hospitality Group and member of the Third Door Coalition, a nonprofit organization that is made up of business leaders, service providers, and researchers. Their stated goal is to end chronic homelessness in Seattle and in King County. I revisited Howard again recently and asked him what, if any, progress has been made. There has been a shift in attitude about homelessness from the state legislature. Until very recently, the state legislature viewed homelessness as just a Seattle problem. However, in the last couple of years, homelessness has been growing rapidly in Olympia, Mount Vernon, Everett, and other Washington cities. Robert Siegel, retired host of NPR's All Things Considered, was in Seattle recently as a guest of the William Ruckelhouse Center. He spoke about the attack on journalism today, which is actually an assault on our democracy. Now back to homelessness for just a moment. I'd like to hear from you and what you think. Do you think the situation's getting better? Is it getting worse? Your thoughts. Call 425-653-1166 and leave a message. And I'll get it on the air, but please limit your comments to about 45 seconds. I would like to get as many people on as possible. That number again is 425-653-1166. Back with my interview with Howard S. Wright in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. I had the opportunity to visit with Howard S. Wright III after visiting with him last year with an interview about homelessness. Howard is a third-generation Seattleite. He is chair of the Seattle Hospitality Group and is a member of the Third Door Coalition, which is trying to help ease homelessness in Seattle. Howard was co-chair of the successful effort to raise the minimum wage to $15 per hour in Seattle. Again, I spoke with Howard last year about the homelessness situation and see what, if any, progress has been made. One thing we did address is the Como piece about Seattle is dying. He had some comments on that. Coincidentally, I had my discussion with Howard at his office near the Pike Place Market. He had just returned from touring homeless and low-income shelters. Let's pick up with my discussion with Howard at that point. I uh, met down at uh, DESC, which is Downtown Emergency Services Center, uh, an organization that has been around for decades in different permutations, uh, led uh, now by um, Daniel Malone, and he gave me a two-hour tour, not only of what used to be called the Old Morrison Hotel on the corner of 3rd and James, across from the former county jail, but to uh, their shelters there, overnight shelters for men, for women, and also 500 studio apartments uh, above that. 
and then uh, and then we toured uh, some facilities uh, here in Seattle uh, for the last uh, the first hour was at the Morrison the second hour was touring different facilities including a couple of uh, newly brought online uh, permanent supportive housing definition of permanent supportive housing is long-term apartments uh, for people who need uh, medical and uh, and therapy uh, services so those are housed in the lobby of these buildings and it gets formerly homeless people uh, on their feet and if we could build more of those we'd be solving a lot of the homeless uh, people on the streets and the tents and things like that that people have become uh, so aware of you mentioned there were 500 units are they full they are they are full and you may stay there for an extended period of time uh, the shelters, um, to, as distinguished from the shelters, uh, which are more e emergency, day of, night of uh, facilities, uh, which are massive uh, rooms with, with uh, double tall bunk beds. There's a little bit of a misconception that people are you know, kicked out uh, in the morning, and actually it's just part of the hygiene program uh, of deep cleaning every day. Uh, deep washing uh, of all the wool blankets, the bunks, things like that. Any other takeaways as of what you saw this morning? Well, I'll tell you uh, about uh, an observation that I made where, you know, it's something um, I didn't know. And toward the end of the morning, uh, when I was in a, a permanent supportive housing uh, building at, at the so in the South End on Rainier Avenue, it reminded me of a college dorm. Clean, attractive, efficient you know, uh, concrete floors, mailboxes, a meeting room, television room, things like that. And then the, the apartments are, are upstairs via an elevator, six-story building. And I asked uh, the director, so this seems to me to be, uh, you know, much, obviously it's a much higher end unit than, than what I saw this morning in the shelter. And I imagine that the people here have met a higher threshold of stability and, um, and less chaos in their lives, and that allows them to get into what appeared to me to be a fairly low drama uh, structure. And he said, no, actually, just the opposite. He said, it's the homeless people that we saw this morning in the shelter that we would like to get into a facility like this. We just don't have enough of them. And if we could, the, the, the more stable environment that you can give people, the quicker they recover and have some stability in their lives. That doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to be a high-functioning, productive human being, you know, out in the economy and, um, and out in society. But the more stable environment that you can, you can give them, uh, the faster road to what their level of recovery will be, will occur. So it's still, to me, what I see is kind of like a needle in the haystack, that this sounds really good, but the problem is so huge. Do you feel we're making significant progress? or is it still a long ways to go? I think in the middle. I think we're making progress. Uh, we're certainly much more focused on it than we were. It has the attention of many more people. People who work in this, uh, in this sector, in this industry, if you will, um, have obviously been aware of this every day. I mean, this is their everyday lives and providing therapy services, medical services, recovery services, um, addiction uh, recovery services, things like that. They've seen this all the time. But what, those of us who are not in that sector are seeing are now more aware of it. Five years ago or more, we didn't see the tent situation. And, and is that as a result of cutting both mental health services and addiction services from 
by the federal government in the late 80s? And the answer is actually it's more relative to the economic recovery that we're experiencing here, not only in the country, but specifically in our own region. We all know what the low unemployment rate is. And our housing prices have gone up, uh, rent prices uh, have gone up like a hockey stick on a chart uh, versus what housing vouchers will pay for, uh, for people who are, are living on, on subsidized housing vouchers. And that gap is not being addressed, which is why we are seeing so many people uh, with no place to live and, and living in tents. Now that's not all of the tent dwellers. When I started thinking about updating our conversation, and this is great to be able to do this, is that I've just noticed uh, over the last year, you can't really have a conversation at any length of time with anybody. If we're having dinner, or let's say just chatting over coffee. At some point, if it extends any length of time, longer than 20 minutes, homelessness comes up. And it just seems to me that people still feel helpless, that nothing's being done, the problem is getting worse. That's just the perception. And you talked about a little bit that we're making some progress, but I just have a sense out there that that's still the feeling, that it's, it's deteriorating. I think it could be the feeling. I'm also, I've been watching this for uh, two or three years now, and I am beginning to see improvements on the street. Um, last year, I thought was sort of the nadir of my experience. I know that more uh, housing is being developed, uh, more services are being offered to help people. It's still a startling experience, especially if you're not from an urban environment as Seattle. Um, but I know that we talked about uh, what is the level of support for these needs in the legislature, across the legislature, covering the entire state. And there's never been a higher level I'm not saying there's a high level, I'm saying there's never been a higher level of support because homelessness and tent cities and things like that are not just a Puget Sound region issue, but we're seeing it more and more across many parts of the state. And I've seen that in my own travels uh, to Eastern Washington. You have been a part of the Third Door Coalition for yes. now a year. Mm -hmm. How's that going? It's going well. Uh, Third Door Coalition was formed uh, two years ago to address chronic homelessness and a solution to getting people to break that chain of chronic homelessness is more of what I earlier referred to as permanent supportive housing. And it's a fancy word for saying apartment housing with supportive services in the lobby. Did you watch Seattle is Dying? I did. What did you think? Um, I thought that it was, um, I, I want to say two things at once as if I could say something in stereo because uh, I thought that what they showed was accurate. I didn't feel they showed the whole picture. Um, and uh, I thought that they picked, I mean, their accuracy of the worst of the worst situation was represented in that piece. And I didn't feel that those either in the public sector who are dealing with these issues were consulted or part of the interview, uh, nor did I feel we in the private sector who are addressing these issues were consulted. I know that the private sector was not, and it would have been interesting to have had that conversation so that it's a balanced piece. People who have been very critical, some of my friends and colleagues who have been very critical of the piece. I caution them that remember that this was an opinion piece. This was not news. 
uh, even though it was done by uh, a, you know a local broadcaster affiliate, um, it wasn't run as a news piece. It was run as as an opinion piece, and and I uh, I acknowledge that. Right, and I feel the same way. And um, it got us talking again. It was a focal point. I think my major objection comes from I guess the area of communications. And when you say Seattle is dying, I thought the exact opposite is happening in Seattle. It's thriving now. Some people are dying, and it is a serious situation. Too. I agree. I thought the title of the piece was more than unfortunate. When I'm driving down Rainier Avenue South and I'm getting on the on-ramp to I-90 heading sure. east, which I do a lot, there were tents all over the place right. on both sides of the entrance. I was going by coincidentally, and there was a presence there that were taking the tents out. And I go, oh, good, you know, finally this is happening. Because it was getting hazardous. Mm-hmm. And um, then, you know, it had been gone for a while. And then all of a sudden it came back. That to me just sends a message out to people that this is out of control. And that's where I think that some people get the feeling like I do sometimes as a citizen that nothing is being done or how you can't do the very basic thing there. And that must be extremely costly. There were like 20, 30 people there removing them, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't know what the amount is, but what's your reaction to that? I think that we need to have more, until we build enough permanent supportive housing, I think that we need to have designated areas for people who are living in tents. And I think that uh, my own personal opinion, I, I don't represent any organization when I say this, um, but I think camping and tenting, if you will, in public uh, rights of way uh, should not be tolerated. My thanks to Howard S. Wright for spending time with me today talking once again about the homelessness problem in Seattle. Since that interview, Bartels announced that it is closing its doors in downtown Seattle due to theft and also regulations. Don't know about the regulations, but they claim that theft has been a serious problem making the store unprofitable. And Macy's is pulling out as well. Now, when I had this interview with Howard last year, we didn't talk about this directly, but the situation was that a lot of people were concerned about stores closing in Seattle because of crime and also the homelessness problem. What's changed? This is no longer a fear, it's reality. Robert Siegel, National Public Radio's host of All Things Considered from 1987 until his retirement in 2018, addressed members and guests of the William D. Ruckelhaus Center located in Seattle. The center is a joint effort of Washington State University and the University of Washington. It was created to foster collaborative public policy in the state of Washington and the Pacific Northwest. Robert Siegel's topic, The Role of Journalism, in America. Uh, the core role of the news media in a democracy is frankly to keep an eye on government at the national, uh, state, and local level. Uh, if we don't question and report rigorously on what our elected and appointed officials are doing, uh, then we leave the field open to them to operate without scrutiny. Uh, while that's the core mission, the one that justifies uh, our explicit protection in the Constitution, it's probably the one that's most endangered uh, right now especially the executive branch of the federal government, and especially the leader of the executive branch of of the federal government, Uh, the declining fortunes of newspapers around the country uh, have diminished the numbers of reporters covering state houses and city halls, and that's a problem. 
I, uh, a vital role of the media in a democracy is to report on other centers of authority, whether they're economic, cultural, religious. Uh, how might we be affected by their actions, their decisions, their plans, uh, their choices of leadership? Sometimes uh, these roles of the media are pursued through persistent uh, digging at truths that powerful uh, interests would rather not see made public or through leaked documents and uh, by whatever means, uh, stories that make powerful people and institutions answer the questions of ordinary citizens, uh, not for, for partisan motives, but uh, through a deep commitment to openness, are stories that let you know uh, you're in a democracy. Uh, in undemocratic societies, including ones where I did some reporting, uh, such stories don't get published, and those who try to publish them uh, can find their lives uh, made unpleasant or even untimely short. One of the most important roles of the news media in a civil and democratic society is the role of, I, I think of it as translation. Uh, different professions have their own jargons, rich in meaning for people in the profession, but mystifying uh, to those whose interest is only casual. Lawyers, economists, football coaches, scientists, uh, all have their specialized vocabularies and languages. It's a vital role of the media to translate uh, from those dialects into an understandable uh, common tongue. Uh, for those in the know, uh, a big question might be, will the Fed raise interest rates by a quarter point or a half point or, or not at all? Uh, to a great many Americans, a more fundamental story is, what's the Fed uh, and, and why is it? Uh, the news media do some of their best and most useful work when they proceed from an often rather minor incremental development of the day, like a rate cut, to a definitional story that explains what our institutions are how they operate, uh, and introduce us to some contrasting judgments, perhaps from informed observers. Uh, at a time when an angry populism is afoot, not just in this country, but in uh, Britain and much of Europe and other countries, explaining complicated practices and institutions and translating their private languages into an accessible uh, uh, idiom is especially urgent uh, because people who are unaccustomed to the exercise of authority, people for whom government and uh, business are just uh, uh, celebrities on television, such people are susceptible to all sorts of conspiracy theories about how decisions are made. Secret cabals of politicians, bureaucrats, and journalists are making stuff up, uh, thwarting the public will, imposing unwanted change on us, whether from Washington or from Wall Street or from Brussels. Uh, the news media can't eliminate all such conspiratorial thinking, but uh, when they expose both wrongdoing and also explain the way things are supposed to work, uh, the media perform a vital role for democracy. Uh, a role of journalism is to provide a window on the world to report from other countries, to help the American public make its own judgments about issues rising far away. Issues that could be of war and peace, trade, climate change, challenges to human rights or to our national interests. It's also to report on science and culture. And again, that may require a fair amount of translation. Uh, it's also an extremely important role of the media uh, to observe and defend the borders between facts, opinions, and propaganda. And on that score, I don't think the media, and I'm especially thinking now of cable, are serving us especially well. Uh, the line between a news broadcast and a show for which the news is grist for talk uh, is becoming a line that is blurred and dotted at best. Uh, panels on uh, news and news talk show programs 
often mix reporters from the channel we're watching with reporters from newspapers, with former government officials, political consultants, political activists, academics, freely mixing uh, reported fact with opinion and speculation. And I wonder how many viewers of such discussions see a difference between the reporters who typically go to multiple sources uh, and pass the scrutiny of editors and fact checkers to, to arrive at their work, uh, how many see a difference between those people and the others who are opining or expressing their, uh, uh, their own personal beefs? Uh, I fear that these mixed groupings make the reporters seem to a lot of ordinary viewers to be just another talker with just another take. I'm, I'm all for panels full of opinionated people. I just wish the reporters would stay off of them. The attempt to invoke loyalty uh, to the president over the scientific judgment of hurricane forecasters may seem trivial and overworked and not worth talking about. But the president is not a monarch or a high priest. Uh, when scientists can't stand up for their work without fear of being silenced, when their supervisors can't stand up for their scientists' work without fear of being fired, uh, we risk entering some very dangerous territory. What I thought was the old days of where I grew up in New York City, the newsstand with eight daily newspapers, and uh, uh, the, or later on the, uh, the nightly network TV shows with Walter Cronkite or Huntley and Brinkley. That's not the way it used to be. That's a snapshot of the way a constantly changing media system is forever evolving. And right now it's, it's evolving rather quickly. And uh, what can be self-evident to one generation that grew up on one set of uh, media institutions can be opaque and confusing to another. Uh, in this regard, I'll just conclude by uh, telling you the story of my parents who come to mind. They were, they were avid newspaper readers uh, in New York City. My father was a school teacher who'd been trained to be a lawyer uh, and admin a school administrator, he read the New York Times. But he also had a weak spot for the New York Herald Tribune, which was the, the far more stylishly written broadsheet newspaper. My mother, who had trained to be an English teacher and worked as a school secretary, brought home the New York Post, which in those days was the, the uh, tabloid-sized voice of New York City liberalism, especially ethnic groups uh, that voted liberal in a city that uh, defined much ethnically. Uh, the very funny writer Calvin Trillin uh, once uh, constructed what he, uh, the satirical ultimate New York Post front page headline, Snowstorm Blankets New York, uh, blacks and Jews suffer most, um, and uh, and that kind of summed up the sort of summed up the attitude of the of the paper. Uh, when it came to newspapers, my parents were typically educated, uh, sophisticated consumers in New York City, very typical of of, uh, of of their their class, let's say. But to them, television news was something completely different. Uh, the local news channel they favored was the one that ended at 11 so they could go to sleep uh, rather than the ones that went from 11 to 11.30, which were actually better shows. I thought that they had chosen the sleaziest news show in New York, uh, but it turned out that they really weren't very fussy about uh, standards when it came to television, not, not nearly so much as they were with newspapers. Uh, when I came back on home leave from London, where I was NPR's, I was the beginning of the NPR foreign staff and spent four years there, and when I came home, I mentioned to my parents, thinking that I was giving them some helpful guidance in their TV news viewing, uh, that I'd become friends in London with the ABC news anchor who was based there, Peter, the late uh, Peter Jennings. I told him, he's a very solid reporter. He tries to do interesting, uh, honest work, and he's kept uh, his network, ABC, committed to uh, foreign news coverage when it's dropping off the other networks. 
you know whom we really like, uh, said my father with his law degree and his two master's degrees and everything but a dissertation for a doctorate in education. You know who we really like? Alex Trebek. Um, I'll just add here that uh, while my parents were very proud of my career in public radio, when my name popped up twice on Jeopardy, whether, I don't know whether it was an answer or a question or an answer in the form of a question, uh, it was a wonderful moment for my parents. Uh, uh, it probably worked out without my going to law school or medical school, I could say, and uh, uh, I regret that they couldn't live to see the day when, on the occasion of my retirement, I was an entire Jeopardy category. Um, <laughs> I say this in the, in, as a matter of, 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 of modesty. It may be that I'm as baffled and confused and, and uh, reading new digital media as strangely as my parents uh, saw television news. Uh, but I uh, welcome the opinion to, to listen and learn and above all, uh, to field your questions. So thank you very much. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Bruce Pinkleton. I'm Dean of the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University. There are a few uh, lesser known facts about Robert I'll mention. He's actually taken one of them. He has a deep appreciation for classical music, a wonderful sense of humor, and he's received the most coveted appreciations of all, uh, a cameo appearance on The Simpsons, and his own category on Jeopardy. So. Robert, the theme is the role of media in civil and democratic society. Yeah. We don't have a lot of time, so, so let's get to it. Uh, in my experience, having been around journalism for a good portion of my life now, there's really no other topic that seems to generate more interest than media bias or, or unfairness in media. Um, what's your perspective on media bias or fairness? Can, can a journalist ever be truly neutral or objective? Uh, in, in, your, in one's personal life, no. Uh, in one's professional role, uh, one can be fair. And uh, uh, journalists, certainly those who spend their lives in the thick of public institutions, uh, develop opinions and, and views of what's going on and perhaps uh, uh, even uh, partisan preferences. But that would describe my dentist as well. He, he, has, he has very distinct uh, beliefs and opinions uh, they don't, I hope they don't figure in the way that he does dentistry. Uh, and, uh, and journalists who, who operate as reporters uh, and who uh, put their, their, uh, their work to the test of, uh, of, of good editing uh, do not, simply do not let their, their personal uh, preferences into their work. That's Robert Siegel, former host of NPR's All Things Considered, and then followed by a first question to Mr. Siegel from Bruce Pinkleton, the dean of the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University. If you'd like to touch base with the William D. Ruckelhaus Center, you can call 206-428-3021. That's 206-428-3021. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Howard S. Wright and Robert Siegel. Have you seen an improvement in homelessness over the last year? Call 425-653-1166 and leave your comments. Please limit your reflections and comments to 45 seconds or so. I want to get as many people on as possible. That number, 425-653-1166. This show will be repeated tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock a.m.
My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. Have a great rest of the day and week.